Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Sweet. Well, good morning, Imago Day. My name is Josh Butler. I'm one of the pastors here at Imago. And today, Happy New Year's. Yes. Today is New Year's Day, which, uh, as you know, means brace yourselves. The new New Year's resolutions are coming, right? Like, we're all familiar. This is the time where we get bombarded with like, hey, what are you going to do this year? What's going to be different? What's going to change? It's a time where we like to realign our priorities with what is most important to us. So as an example, uh, this last week, this is a picture of the parking lot at my gym. Uh, This next week, this is what the parking lot at my gym will look like, right? And uh, that's good news if you're one of the new folks kind of jumping in, and maybe not so good news if you're one of the regulars who now has to look, you know, park down the street and wait an hour for your favorite piece of equipment. Uh, But as much as we might give resolutions a hard time, I do think there's this sense that it is significant from time to time to be able to step back and zoom out and ask, hey, what are our priorities? What is it that is most important and valuable to us? And how do we kind of reorder or realign and recalibrate our lives around those things? Along those lines, today I want to talk about worship. And worship, not just as kind of, not, not just kind of the, the sense of like the music that we sing together, but worship in kind of this bigger, more robust sense of what is most important to us. What do we order our lives around? And the centrality that God should hold in that primary place of our lives. So we're going to be in Psalm 135 today, if you have your Bible with you and you want to turn there. And we're going to look not only at worship, but also deformed worship. What happens when uh, we displace God and put other things in that place? What does that do to us and our lives? What does that do to our world? Uh, deformed worship is something the Bible calls idolatry. So we want to look at kind of worship and idolatry. How do those things work? Uh, how do they go together? And how do we kind of order our lives 2017 around worship of God? So Psalm 135 opens with this. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, you servants of the Lord. You who minister in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. The psalmist opens here declaring and calling the people to declare. Let's declare the praise and grandeur and glory of our God. Let's put him at the center of our focus, of our gaze, of our attention. And he goes on to elaborate why. Because God has chosen us as his people. Because he has created the earth and holds all things together. Because he has delivered us from oppression, from captivity. And he has brought us into his presence. If we go down to verse 13... He continues saying, your name, Lord, endures forever. Your renown, Lord, through all generations. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And he goes on to contrast the worship of God with another kind of worship. He says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all 
who trust in them. That's the part I kind of want to land on here is this, this observation where the psalmist says, those who make these idols will become like them, and so will all who trust in them. What is he saying? That the idols will form us in their image. Now, he's not saying that, man, if you worship an idol, you're literally going to become like a little stone statue, right? You don't change in that sense. But he is saying, like, you look at these idols, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. And when we displace God with kind of these inanimate, lifeless objects, there's a sense that we become more inanimate and lifeless ourselves. That it degrades our humanity. It numbs us to the truth and the reality and the presence of God. This is actually a significant theme in Scripture. Uh, Isaiah 6 is a beautiful passage where God commissions Isaiah and he says, hey, I've got this message. I want you to send it and bring it to my people, to the people of God. And he says this, uh, go tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." And at first glance, you can kind of go, man, what is going on here? Why is God saying, hey, Isaiah, why do you take this message? And the goal is that they won't get it, right? Can you imagine if I asked you to like lead a Bible study? And, and so you were going to you know, do this Bible study. And it's like, okay, here's the goal, that no one in the room gets a thing you're saying, right? You'd be like, that is a really weird Bible study. Maybe you could like speak in a foreign language or just do it, make, make it as obtuse as possible so no one gets what you're talking about. That can seem weird at first glance, but if we zoom out to the surrounding context in Isaiah, God is railing against the people because they have displaced him and they have turned to worship these idols. They have hardened themselves against their creator, their redeemer, the God who comes for them. There's a sense that in doing this, they have become hardened and numb like the lifeless inanimate objects they've given themselves to and they've become numb to the glorious presence of the God who comes for them. Jesus also uses this language. Uh, he's with his disciples and they're like, Jesus, why are you always talking in parables? Like, why don't you just talk straight so everyone kind of gets it right away, right? He's like, and he quotes Isaiah. He goes, well, the goal, the reason I'm talking in parables is lest they see uh, with their eyes and get it or, or hear with their ears that these people, uh, they, they, they see but they don't perceive. They hear, but they don't understand. And so Jesus, like Isaiah, he's going, man, the people, I've come to the people of God, but they have turned from God. They have given themselves to their, these other things. And in so doing, they have hardened themselves. The point is, if we replace God with other things, if we make other things ultimate, they'll kill us inside. Right? If we replace God with idols, they will numb us and harden us and ultimately kill us inside, deaden us. Because, as Gary so eloquently put uh, this morning in the call to worship, we become what we worship. A uh, quote by a guy named G.K. Beale, he puts it this way. He says, what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. That which you revere, you come to resemble 
either for ruin or for restoration. Like we see this from uh, childhood on, right? Like uh, we see it right out of the gate with kids. And so uh, I've got, you know, my, my two youngest boys are three and two, and uh, we've got this little toy kitchen in our, uh, in, our, in our kitchen, right? And so when Holly and I are cooking meals and we're preparing meals and stuff, and Torn and Jake, they love to come up. They look up to us, you know, and they revere us, I, I hope, and they, they see us, you know. And they love to go to their little toy kitchen and pretend like they're cooking too. And they'll come and show it to me. And it's not enough for me to just go, oh, that's really great. They're like, no, we eat your food. You you eat our food, right? I want to make sure I down the whole thing. I'm like, oh, it's really good. It's really good. They revere us and they come to resemble us. They take on our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors. Man, uh, for Christmas, I mean, the best present I probably could have, I didn't, but I probably could have gotten them would be a broom, right? Because they just love, they see me sweeping up after dinner and they love, they want to go grab the broom from me and like, no, me sweep. I'm like, no, well, okay, for a little while. And they want to do what they see their parents doing. They're always trying to, I love reading to them. They always want to read, even though they can't read yet, you know, and they'll just make up words like, ah, the pizza is delicious. There's no pizza in there, but that's what, that's the words we know, dad, right? So there's a sense that what you revere, you resemble. You revere your parents, your, those who you look up to, you start to take on their actions and attitudes. And it doesn't end with childhood. You get older and get into, say, high school, and uh, we tend to model ourselves or mimic our peers. And so it could be the fashion we wear. Uh, I might date myself here, but uh, when I was in high school, I remember, man, it was uh, town and country and Quicksilver. Like, that's what all the cool kids were wearing. That's what I wanted to be wearing. Uh, that was, you know, often with the music that we listened to. That's how I got into like Mud Honey and Dinosaur Jr. If you're familiar with that, those, there, that was like what you know what, what my my peers were listening to. Or whether you're going to go into athletics or into arts, like we tend to resemble that which those we look up to and see around us are doing. What you revere, you resemble. That can be a good thing if. Uh, your, your peers you revere are, are, doing, are, are good in character and all, and it can be bad when not. But the reality is that we are like mannequins, right? There's kind of the sense that, uh, the, like mannequins in a store, like that which we are surrounded by, we come to sort of clothe ourselves in. Or we're like mirrors, like that which we gaze upon, we begin to reflect. We become what we worship. Uh, you know, one other example of this in Scripture, I, I think is kind of an interesting, funny one, is the term stiff-necked. You read that a couple of times, like, man, God's like, you people, you're so stiff-necked. I was always like, what does that mean? You know, nobody insults uh, people today by going, hey, you're so st- stiff-necked. There's no, like, yo mama jokes. Yo mama's so stiff-necked, right? Uh, it's not an insult we use today. Uh, but then went back and reading and you see the context where it first appears is right after the golden calf incident where God has just delivered his people out from slavery and they right out of the gate, they build this golden cow and they start bowing down to it. And it's right after that, this is where God says, man, you, my people have become so stiff necked, you would not obey. And he starts to describe them like unruly cows, right? says, you were let loose uh, because Aaron had kind of let them go loose like these stray cattle. That They had quickly turned aside from the way they were supposed to go and go in their own way. And you can hear them kind of going, right? And he's like, they needed to be gathered together again and brought back into the gate. 
so that Moses could lead the people where God told them to go. See, in context, like they had become like unruly cattle. They had become like what they worshipped. What does this mean uh, for us today? That we become like what we worship. What does that mean for us today? Because we don't worship uh, idols today, right? Like uh, no one I know has like little stone statues that they they bow down to, that kind of thing. Well, if we're going to get the connection today, I think we first have to understand a bit about what was going on with idolatry. Why were the idols attractive? And first off, they were a means of access to things like sex and money and power. And so uh, if you wanted to look for like sex and love or things of that nature, like you had the goddesses of like Aphrodite and Diana and Venus or with mammon, there was, you know, money, there was like the god of mammon or with power, you had like Zeus and Jupiter and, 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 and these others. And so there's a sense that you looked to these gods for, for provision and protection And so there were gods for fertility to make sure that the crops came in and that the harvest was good and there'd be an abundance of food. You know, gods for kind of victory in war, gods that were identified with your nation and kind of this nationalism because our gods are stronger than your gods and so we'll be able to beat you up, right? So it's just that we, uh, people would look to gods for provision and protection and there was a sense that the presence of these gods was contained in the idol, right? It's there, they're really here but they transcended and were bigger than and beyond the idol. And so but worshiping this idol, bringing it gifts, doing things for it and all, was like giving you access to transcendence, and trying to kind of channel uh, this power for your own good. And so the idols were looked to for provision, for providence, for protection. And often these were good things, right? Like God has created many, they're, they're good things, but they were uh, displaced out from under the one true God and were often associated with brutal practices. And I think when we get this picture in mind, we start to see this starts to get us a lot closer to today. Uh, Martin Luther has this quote uh, I really like where he says, hey, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. What Luther is saying is that that which we uh, order our heart towards, that's what we, most, that what we most love, what we most desire, what we most want, what we kind of trust in and revere and look to for our ultimate security, that's what we've kind of made our, our God. Uh, that's what can turn something good that God's made into an idol. When we displace God with that thing and we ultimately look to it for our protection, our provision, and our security apart from God. So I was trying to think of, okay, well, which modern idol do I want to talk about today? How do we try and unpack this and get a close-up glimpse? And there are the usual go-tos. There are things like, you know, sex and money and power. Those seem maybe a little more obvious. There are maybe sort of our, our cultural uh, places of worship and idols, like, like the shopping mall and consumerism, or like the football uh, stadium arena or the concert arena, right? Or there are ways we can even idolize our, our, our kids or our family and uh, place them over God. But uh, I decided after thinking about the idol I want to talk about today is this. Right? Yes, the, the smartphone technology. So for all of you who opened up your Christmas present and saw the new iPhone 7, I am sorry. I'm going to, uh, 
Have you smashed it by the end of it? No, I'm joking. I, <laughs> I'm joking. I have a smartphone. I'm not anti-technology. We're not going to be saying technology is evil or anything of that nature. But I do want to ask, uh, as kind of an example, are there ways that we can use technology to kind of displace God, to try and become like God? And are there ways that that technology can shape and form us in unhealthy ways, kind of in its image, right? A little backdrop for me, I had uh, uh, you know, this, this last year, I think there were about three times where I told Holly, my wife, I was just like, man, my memory is slipping. I don't know what's going on. Like, uh, I, I, feel, I was seriously concerned that I might have like an early onset of Alzheimer's or is that possible? How does that work? And because like my, you know, I have all these experiences where my daughter would come up to me, uh, seven years old, and she'd be like, hey, dad, did you do it yet? And I'm like, do what? And she'd be like, get me that box of cereal from the cupboard that I asked you for five minutes ago. And I'd just be like, I do not remember that at all. Or I'd be in a conversation with someone and they just told me their name a minute ago and I'd just be scrambling trying to remember what was their name again, you know? And I, I found just common everyday things, my memory just slipping. I was like, what is going on? So I started doing uh, some research about a month ago and started learning like, oh my gosh, this is actually a very common cultural phenomenon today. Uh, they have found, studies have shown that uh, millennials kind of age 18 to 34, sort of the younger generation, uh, we have worse memories today than seniors and the elderly. Here's a quote, uh, the Huffington Post, Carolyn Gregoire uh, makes this observation. She says, uh, so-called senior moments are becoming increasingly common among younger people. Millennials are more likely than those over the age of 55 to forget what day it is and where they put their keys. Uh, Gen Yers even forget to take a shower more than seniors. And, <laughs> and why is this? Like, like what's sort of happening to our memory? Well, <laughs> the studies to kind of understand it would say, you know, uh, first we have to understand like our short-term memory and our long-term memory, right? And the way they work. And so if you think of it like a thimble and a bathtub, like your short-term memory is a thimble, small little capacity. Bathtub, your long-term memory has like infinite, like massive capacity, right? And uh, when you have idle time, time where you're not distracted, you're not thinking about something, you're not paying attention to whatever, uh, they found actually stuff is going on during that time. It's not as idle as we think it is because that is the time where your brain takes stuff from short-term memory and puts it over in your long-term memory, like downloads it to your hard drive, right? Like when the thimble full of water gets dumped into the bathtub. And the problem is when there's just kind of a constant stream of information and distraction and, and our tensions consumed, you never get time for the, the transfer to take place. The thimble never gets dumped into the tub. And the thimble, again, is pretty small. And so uh, it doesn't, if it doesn't have time to do that, it just loses the capacity to retain the information it's receiving. So Nicholas Carr in, Wild, uh, in Wired magazine makes this observation. He says, he puts it this way, he says, the depth of our intelligence hinges on our ability to transfer information from working memory, like the thimble, right, the scratch pad of consciousness, to long-term memory, like the bathtub, right, the, the mind's filing system. When facts and experiences enter our long-term memory, we're able to weave them into the complex ideas that give richness to our thought. A break in our attention can sweep its contents from our mind. A break in our attention. Well, what is, is breaking our attention today? Well, Time Magazine found that the average American checks their phone 85 times a day or more. 
right? Uh, and the irony was, though, when they asked people, people think it was, they thought it was like half or less of that. So people would say, ah, I probably take my 35, 40, and it was like 85 and up, right? And so we are constantly kind of, uh, you know, our attention is often broken and taken and, and consumed more than we realize it is. Another author, uh, Tony Schwartz, uh, uses the image not of a thimble, but of an overflowing glass for our short-term memory when it's kind of bombarded with this overflow of information. And he puts it uh, this way. He says, um, <clears throat> it's like having water poured into a glass continuously all day long. So whatever was there at the top has to spill out as the new water comes down. We're constantly losing the information that's just come in. We're constantly replacing it, and there's no place to hold what you've already gotten. It makes for a very superficial experience. You've only got whatever's in your mind at the moment, and it's hard for people to metabolize and make sense of the information because there's so much coming at them, <clears throat> and they're so drawn to it. You end up feeling overwhelmed because what you have is an endless amount of facts without a way of connecting them into a meaningful story. So the sense with the, the constant bombardment of information, uh, we lose the ability to kind of organize and order it and retain it into a bigger story. And a similar problem we'll talk about is uh, multitasking, how we tend to think we're really great at multitasking, like I can do these five different things at once, right? But they found actually when you're trying to do multiple things at once, the glass fills up a lot quicker. Uh, your, your actual capacity for retaining memory is weakened. And so uh, when I'm, you know, kind of checking my email and then my daughter comes up and asks me something and then I go to Twitter and then on Facebook, like, like when you're constantly moving between different pieces of information and all, uh, your, your, your glass fills up quicker. So I was talking with a buddy who works in technology this week and he was saying, man, they, they've also found with studies that um, like uh, Google Maps, right? Like uh, younger folks today who have grown up with like Google Maps and these technologies where you just follow to get your directions from this, they found they actually have less of a mental map in their head of say your city or the place that you live and are less knowledgeable of knowing like what direction I'm currently facing or how it relates where my house is, what direction my house or other places are. <laughs> Similarly, one final thought I thought was interesting was uh, they've also found that when you take a picture of a key moment, right, uh, that you actually, uh, in kind of the process, pulling out the phone and taking the picture or whatever, your memory, uh, you lose, uh, you, you don't have as much of a memory in your own head of the experience itself. Sorry, Instagram. <laughs> now... Again, I'm not saying uh, that technology is the devil or that we shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be involved with any of this, but um, I do think, you know, uh, author uh, Carolyn Martin, she puts it this way, she says, that the good news is that your phone is not in charge, right? Uh, the bad news is that you are. <laughs> so, so I think the root issue is not so much the phone itself. I was just the root problem can be what we look to for, what we look to for in our phones, in our technology, right? Suggest the root problem, there's a part of it is that we want to be omniscient and omnipresent, right? 
We want to be omniscient. We want to have access to all the data, all the information, all the news of what's going on in the world, all the events that are happening. Um, we might be missing out, and so we've got to be exposed to the constant influx of data of what is happening in our world. We need this new information, this knowledge, and we need it as it is happening. We want to be omniscient, uh, which means to have all knowledge, right? Like all, all knowledgeable. And we also want to be omnipresent. We want to be connected, plugged in, connected to all the, the, the people that we can be, have kind of ever-expanding, broadening connection to others. But the irony is, as we strive to become omniscient, it appears we actually become less knowledgeable, Right? We actually, uh, our, uh, our ability to retain knowledge and information is reduced. Could it be that our smartphones are making us dumber, right? And as we strive to be omnipresent, present to all people at all times and able to be alerted and checked in on it all, that we actually become less present. As we try to become omnipresent, we become less present to our family and friends and those immediately around us, our neighbors that God has given us. And the irony is that, you know, God actually is omniscient and God is omnipresent. But he is because he is different from us. He is creator, not a creature, not a part of a creation, right? God is spirit who has brought all things into existence. And so he is present to all things and sustaining all things and uh, holds all knowledge and information and all. And so uh, these are good things for God to be. Uh, but they are maybe not so much good things for us to strive to be. Uh, Historically, the church has distinguished between what we call the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable. Incommunicable basically means these are things uh, in, like, communicate, right, that that are not communicated to us, that are not, they don't become part of us. God, these are things like his identity, his incommunicable one, where his communicable attributes are like his character, Right? And so his incommunicable, God's identity, God is omnipresent, he's omniscient, uh, he knows all, he's present to all, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, right? he's infinite. And that's just part of his identity as creator who's distinct from his creation. And yet God's communicable attributes, his character that he does communicate to us, that when we're in communion with him, we begin to partake of these things and they shape and form us, or his character, that he is love, that he is just, his justice, his faithfulness, his holiness. These are ways that we are to become like God, shaped and formed by him. And the danger can be when we strive to become like God in his identity, we become diminished in becoming like God in his character, right? But when we, when we place God as God in his identity, who he is, we become in a place where when we worship God, we can become like God in terms of his character, that we begin to take on his attributes. He forms us by his love, by his justice, by his holiness, by his faithfulness in the world. When we put God at the center, he makes us more human. And this is one of the reasons why idols were not allowed 
the Bible. It was actually to, first to protect their understanding of God and who he was. Because it says that God is creator and his spirit holds together all creation. God is bigger than creation and outside of and yet within and sustaining and holding all things together. When Israel said that here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They didn't mean like he's just one dude up in the sky somewhere or one separate being or whatever. They meant he is being itself. He is the ground of our existence. He is the one uh, from whom all things exist and through whom all things are held together. And when we minimize God or we displace God with something else, when we make that ultimate, we get a very constrained and restricted picture of, um, of who God is. And so God invited Israel to smash the idols so that their vision could expand and be brought back to the bigness of God's reality. To be awestruck at the transcendence of the God who holds all things together, including us in the very palm of his hand. So one reason that we need to kind of smash the idols in our lives or put God back at the center is so that we can have our vision expanded to the bigness and greatness and grandeur of God, to be captivated again by his transcendence and his glory and the huge kind of massiveness of who he is for our world. The other reason is this. It's not only to protect our understanding of who God is, it's to protect our understanding of who we are that God wants to make us more human. And when God is at the center, our humanity is restored. When we revere God Almighty, it helps restore and replenish and bring back the fullness of our humanity. So we kind of want to look here, finally, at maybe two ways that the idols make us less human and God makes us more human. First way that idols make us less human. One is, I think we, uh, we, we lose touch through idolatry with the true nature of the story we live in. We lose touch with the story that we live in. To use technology again as an example, kind of our smartphones, John uh, Huth is a Harvard uh, physics professor, and he talks about how uh, today, because of this bombardment of information, it all just becomes a random uh, bombardment of random fragments of detail, uh, often losing the overarching story or context that they fit in. He says this, he says, sadly, we often atomize knowledge into pieces that don't have a home in a larger conceptual framework. When this happens, we surrender meaning, like we, we lose touch with the meaning that data was intended to portray. He goes on and says, and it loses its personal value. He illustrates this way he calls the uh, Baker-Baker paradox, that uh, they've done these experiments where uh, they have uh, you know, two groups of people, and they're each shown a picture of a guy, right? Same guy. And one group is told, this guy's name is Mr. Baker, and da -da -da, all these details about his life, right? Other group is told, this guy is a baker, like his occupation, right? And they go on, da -da -da -da. Later they come back, and uh, the Mr. Baker folks cannot remember for the life of them what his name was, right? But the folks who were told he is a baker remember it much more likely. They have a much stronger chance they, they remember it. And as they go into why, it's because the sense of like, well, when you hear of a baker, like an occupation, you think of like the guy with the apron on and the hat. He's in the kitchen. He's, you know, putting the cookies in the stove or whatever. There's a story that starts to form around that detail. 
But when it's just kind of his name, like all you have is this random fragment of detail with no sort of story to put it in. And the idea is, uh, you know, I, I think when we, uh, when, we, <clears throat> when we lose the story that things are supposed to fit in, we may get the data, but we lose its meaning. We displace God and make something else ultimate. We may get the, uh, the kind of brute reality. We lose the meaning and the story it was intended to fit in. So we th- see this with other things like uh, sex. Like our culture loves to idolize uh, sex and rom- romantic relationships and things of that nature. But when we idolize sex, we often lose the story that it was intended to live in. We lose the story of covenant of faithfulness. We lose the story of a God who goes, I want to continue the miracle of creating the human race through you, through humanity. We lose that broader or overarching God-centered story that gives it its meaning. Or if we idolize money and we make that ultimate, we displace, uh, we kind of lose touch with that story of a God who is so generous. We can become self-centered and lose the story of generosity that is supposed to infuse our approach to money. All right, so the first way we lose touch with the, the, the story that the things are supposed to fit in. The second and final one, uh, I think the way that idols make us less human, God's makes us more, God makes us more, is we lose touch not only with the story outside of ourselves, but with our emotions and our personhood kind of inside of ourselves. A while back, I remember hearing an interview with uh, Louis C.K., a uh, comedian. I think he often has a very prophetic insight on, on where our culture is at as well. He's, he's not a believer as far as I know, but still has kind of this prophetic uh, insight. And he was on the Conan O'Brien show years ago, and he's kind of being interviewed, and he's, he was talking about why he doesn't let his kids have cell phones. And it was kind of funny, but he talked about it, and he said this. He says, you know, as humans, like, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones are taking away. Underneath in your life, there's that thing, that forever empty, he calls it, kind of that sense of being alone. And he says, that's why we text and drive, because we don't want to be alone for a second. He goes on to share a story where he's driving down the road once, and this Bruce Springsteen song comes on the radio, and he's just like, it hits something deep in his gut, and he feels this well of emotion, and he, this recognition of like, ah, I'm, I'm alone in life, and everything in him wanted to pick up the phone, he said, and text like 50 people, and like, hey, what's up, you know, just to get connected again. But he's like, I resisted the urge, I put it down, and before I knew it, I was weeping. I just had to pull over to the side of the road, and I'm just weeping at my steering wheel, overcome with kind of a sadness, like a melancholy. And he's like, in the wake of that, this joy came. It's like, I, I wouldn't have even been able to feel, I think, the heights of this joy without feeling the depths of the sadness, this awareness of the isolation, of that, you know, and then feel the joy that comes. And, and he was talking about, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, I, and I don't want my kids to numb themselves from life by just constantly being connected. He says, the danger, if this happens, he says, is that you never feel completely sad or completely happy. You just feel kind of satisfied with your products, and then you die. So that's why I don't want to get a phone for my kids. Uh, but there is a sense that the idols can numb us from our humanity, our emotions, our personhood that God has created and wired us for. 
You know, earlier, uh, man, Julia shared about refuge, and that's something I've heard for so many folks who've struggled with addiction is, is one thing that, that many folks in refuge are, are walking through. And, and man, addiction with drug abuse or substance abuse, and you hear people's story and they go, man, I became numb to life. I became numb to kind of the full range of emotions and experience. I became hardened even to other people. God doesn't want that for us. God wants to make us more human. And when we kind of smash the aisles and we let God have his proper place at the center, it frees us up to become more fully embraced in kind of our humanity before God, our creator. So the question this morning, as we kind of wrap up, is uh, what is your idol? Maybe it's not technology. Uh, It could be something else. What's that thing, though, that's displaced God? That maybe it's a good thing, but it's kind of gotten disordered. Uh, It could be that relationship or that job, or wanting enough money to feel secure, feel like that's going to be what does it for me. I think a good question to kind of assess and ask, going, what's that one thing where if this thing were gone, my life would no longer feel worth living? It could even be your own kids. Like, man, that's something I struggle with at times. Like, man, God, you can do anything, take anything, whatever, but just don't let anything bad happen to my kids. You know, like that, that's like the one uh, don't. Don't, don't touch that, God, right? I think we have to be proactive and go, dude, what changes are we willing to make? Uh, as we look at entering this kind of new year, this new season, what changes? Because I think often the reason resolutions seem half-hearted and don't pan out is because we kind of think about it like, oh, it'd be nice if I did that. Maybe I'll take an initial step. We don't actually order our lives around that pursuit. So what does it look like to order our lives to kind of put the idols out, to put things back in their proper places and order our lives around God? I know for myself, I mentioned this, you know, this technology thing. So I've got like eight, nine concrete steps, you know, like a few simple like turning off the notifications on my phone so I'm not constantly like reachable and constant stream of stuff coming at me, like um, not checking email in the morning. I don't know. There, there, there's, I, I've got a set time where I'm like, okay, I'll do social media during this time of the day, but not just all day being distracted and all that, you know. Uh, but concrete steps for whatever that thing is in your life. How do you order your life where things are put back into their proper place? <clears throat> the invitation this morning is that God wants to make you more human. A closing Thought here, I love, we talked about Isaiah 6 earlier, where God comes to Isaiah and he gives us him this message to his people. And as he comes, God has an angel come and it touches Isaiah's lips. And that's the moment he becomes God's messenger. And scholars believe this was modeled off of this ancient mouthwashing ceremony when, where when people made idols in the ancient Near East, they would bring them to the temple and they'd take them to the temple and then they'd wash their mouth. And when they washed their mouth, that was believed to be the time that the mouth was open and the presence of the deity, the God it represented, would come in and, and, and fill it, right? There's a sense of almost a, a, a taunt or an irony here where God does that to Isaiah. He brings him into the temple. He cleanses his mouth. And now Isaiah is going to go forth bearing the presence, not of the idols, but of the living God. One of the reasons God doesn't want us to create images is because he wants us to be his images. He doesn't want us to submit ourselves to these lesser created things. It's because he wants to embody his presence in the world in and through us. 
So the invitation this morning is to make God ultimate, to put him at the center, to order the other things underneath and around him, that we could be filled with his presence as, as we come, we bear his spirit, his presence into the world. We don't need idols because God has made us image bearers, bearers of his image into the world. As we come to the table this morning, we come to Christ who took on our image, right? We come to Jesus who became human like us so that we could become like God. So that we, through our union with Christ and the power of his spirit, we could be brought into communion with the Father and that his love and joy and faithfulness and holiness and all of the goodness of God's character of who he is would shape and form us to reflect and display him into the world. And even for our own joy, that we could just celebrate becoming participants in the beauty of who God is. It's the invitation this morning. There will be people at the doors uh, for prayer. And if you're kind of going, man, there's that one thing that I feel like this year, I just want that to be the thing I, that I, 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 I try and get right. I would invite you to come forward. There's something powerful about articulating that. And together as a community, we get to bring those things before God. I want to invite us as we come to the table to kind of smash the idols come to Christ who is smashed and broken for us in order to bind us with himself and make us whole to truly and more accurately again reflect and bear the image of God. Would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Almighty creator of heaven and earth, we acknowledge, God, that we have ordered our lives around lesser things. God, maybe we, we haven't made little stone statues, God, but we have worshipped idols. We've displaced you from the proper place at the center of our lives and world. And in so doing, God, we have cut against the grain of our own humanity. So restore us, God, for this year, for 2017, even today. God, restore us. We want to worship you and become like you. Thank you, Jesus, that you became like us so that we could become like God that we could be marked by the love, justice, holiness, and faithfulness that marks your eternal life as Father, Son, and Spirit. Make us in your image, Jesus. Move us from being idolaters to being image bearers, God, so that with you at the center of our universe, God, at the center of our lives, we can become more fully human and more fully display your glory, God, here in our city and our families and bear your presence to the world. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.